And in last week's study, we wrapped up really the the first portion of the book of Genesis. It's the section known as prehistory. It's the stuff that explains why much of the world is the way it is, and it covered a period of around 2,000 years, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. This week, we're going to move into the story of God's chosen people who will eventually become known as the Israelites or the Jews, and the whole rest of the book of Genesis, chapter 12 through 50, will cover a period of only about 450 years. The family line of the Jews will begin with a man named Abram, who will be the focus of our study today, and as you may know, the Lord will later change Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. Abraham is known as the father of faith, to Christians. He's famously called the friend of God in James 2.23, possibly the most enviable title I think that anyone could be given in the Bible, the friend of God. It's incredible. And he is venerated by all three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. He is mentioned over 74 times across 11 books in the New Testament, including all four of the Gospels. And here's a really crazy thought when you think about time in the Old Testament. Abraham was actually a contemporary of Noah's for about the last 60 years of Noah's life. Kind of wild. Abraham's life is all about the same struggle that you and I face, the war between the flesh and the spirit, living for God or living for the world. And this is the same struggle in the book of Genesis that we're going to see play out between his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and also between Abraham's wife, Sarai, and her maidservant, Hagar. So go ahead and write this down. The theme of the war between the flesh and the spirit will define the life of Abram or Abraham, the roles of his sons Isaac and Ishmael, and the rivalry between Sarah, whose name will later be changed to Sarah, her name is Sarai for right now, and her maidservant Hagar. Those are just good things to keep in mind as we're going through this whole study. This is the theme of what this is all about. Verses 10 through 26 of chapter 11 lay out Adam's family tree, telling us that he came through the line of Shem, that most blessed son of Noah. We're going to skip ahead all the way to verse 27 and pick things up with Terah, Noah's father. And we read in verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. So hang with me, Lot is Abram's brother's son. So in other words, Lot is Abram's nephew. Then it says, and Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. So sadly, Abram's brother Haran dies before their father Terah does, leaving nephew Lot a little bit lost in the world. He's a fully grown man when our story picks up, but he's lost his dad. Verse 29, then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. So Abram's brother Nahor marries one of his nieces because that wasn't considered weird and creepy at that time. Let me be very clear. That's weird and creepy now, okay? I don't want anybody to say, I saw it in the Bible. Pastor Jeff told me about it. It's weird now. Let me be clear. It wasn't so weird back then. The genetic pool was a little bit more pure. So different time, different situation. Verse 30, but Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Abram's wife, Sarai, can't have kids. 
that's going to come up again in a later study. Verse 31. And Terah, now underline Terah right here. And Terah took his son, Abram, and his grandson, Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. This is what today's study is going to be all about. We're going to find out that God had called Abram to go to Canaan, but this is not how God had told Abram to do things. We're going to find out more about that in a minute. Canaan is really part of the land that we know today as Israel. Keep reading and it says, And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. So Ur, where Abram and his family were coming from, was Babylonian territory. It was about a a hundred miles southeast of Babylon down the river. Canaan, where the Lord told Abram to go, was pretty much directly west, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Haran, where Abram followed his father, Teratu, was about 550 miles northeast of Ur, nowhere near Canaan. They just went upriver through Babylon and just kept on going up. But Haran is where the whole Famjam stays until Terah dies. No wonder Terah's name literally means delay. That's what it means. After Terah dies, Abram finally gets going again, and that's where we pick up our story in chapter 12, where we read, now the Lord had said to Abram. So we're traveling back in time now to when Abram was still back in Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was the most advanced, most prosperous city in the world where bathtubs were first invented. I can't imagine how it would transform a society when people suddenly begin bathing. It must have been amazing. So this tells us that just to live there, Abram was a decently wealthy guy. We also know from other places he was an influential leader in society and that he had an extremely good-looking wife. We'll find out more about that later. And finally, the book of Joshua tells us that Abram was religious. He was worshiping a false god, likely the moon god of the Babylonians. I read three different commentaries and they all gave the moon god three different names. So we're just going to call him the moon god. And despite all this, Abram's lost. He's completely lost. He's headed for hell until the Lord in his mercy and grace looked down and saw in Abram the heart of a man who desired the truth. And so the Lord reached down and revealed himself to Abram by speaking to him. And that's such a perfect picture of sovereignty and how salvation works, that essentially God is seeking those who are seeking him. That as Abram desires truth and looks for truth, God reveals himself to him. Abram couldn't have found God on his own. He was completely at the mercy of God and God showed him mercy and revealed himself to him. So we don't know if this was audible when the Lord spoke to him or not, but the idea is it was a clear enough word that Abram wasn't left wondering, was that the Lord speaking to me or last night's pizza? He knew that he knew this was God speaking to him, and here's what we're told the Lord said to him. Underline these first three lines here. God says, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that, and then underline, I will show you, to a land that I will show you. Initially, the Lord doesn't even tell Abram where he's going. He just tells him, start heading out of Ur, keep going until you receive further instructions. So make a note of this and we'll unpack it. God's first instructions to Abram are to leave his old life 
and head toward a new destination which would be revealed to him. God's first instructions to Abram are to leave his old life and head toward a new destination which would be revealed to him. God says, listen, you got to leave those people behind. You're not going where they're going. Your life is going to be about something very different. So you're going to need to separate yourself from some things in your old life. And now comes the mandate for the Jewish people. This is the summary of what God wanted to do for and through the Jewish people, starting with Abram. God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. They wouldn't become a great and blessed people because of anything they did. It would be because of what the Lord chose to do for them and through them. And what the Lord wanted to do through them the most was bless people. What people? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 3. Underline these two lines. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. We'll come back to that. And in you, and then underline this word, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan was that through this new nation, this new people, beginning with Abram, all the families of the earth would be blessed. All of them. And this was meant to happen three ways. We're going to make some notes here. Firstly, they would reveal God's ways. They would reveal God's ways. Other peoples of the earth would be able to look on and see what it meant practically to live and believe in and walk with God. They would reveal God's ways. Secondly, they would be keepers of God's word. God would record the scriptures through the Jewish people. They would protect, preserve, study it, and teach it to their children. And through them, the scriptures would eventually reach us. And then finally, thirdly, they would be the channel for God's salvation. The greatest blessing of all. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus, would come through the Jewish people. And truly through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Now I had you underline the other part of verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse him who curses you. So without getting derailed, going off on a tangent, let me go off on a quick tangent. This, this principle is still unquestionably in play to this very day. If you want to spend some time doing some research online, you will learn some incredibly interesting things about what has happened as countries have stood with and against Israel, especially over the last 70 years. You will see how attacks against Israel, both political and military, have turned out for her enemies and for her allies. One of the largest reasons that America was so blessed and prosperous in the 20th century was because of their support of the state of Israel. America cast the deciding vote in the newly formed United Nations in 1948 giving Israel statehood. It was only decided by one vote and America was that deciding vote. And it's been a faithful supporter of Israel ever since then. Now Billy Graham once famously quipped, if God doesn't judge America, then he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. America's judgment is going to come at some point. It will. That's an inevitability. But it may very well be that that judgment has been kept at bay for a very long time because America has been supporting Israel. And let me just say this. If the only thing, the only thing that President Trump gets right in his administration is supporting Israel, if that's the only thing, he's going to be blessed by God. You write that down. Watch and see what will happen. Now, I don't know what that blessing is going to look like. 
It could be some unbelievable diplomatic success like brokering peace between North and South Korea, forcing people to give him the Nobel Peace Prize who would rather kill themselves than have to do that. It could be uh, success with the domestic economy, which is happening right now in America. The blessing could simply be that he hasn't been impeached yet. God could be up there going like, you have no idea what sort of strings I'm pulling right now just to keep the guy in office. But one way or another, make no mistake about it, it is very, very good news for America that they have a president who supports Israel because America is going to be blessed because of it. Guarantee the American economy is going to be blessed during the Trump administration if he keeps standing with Israel. That's a guarantee. In the lead up to World War II, the German Nazis began to herd the Jews into ghettos across Europe and, and build walls around these ghettos in places like Poland. And they would turn their machine guns on anyone who tried to climb over those walls. And you know, it wasn't very many years later that there were walls around Berlin and anyone who tried to climb over them would be shot with a machine gun. Here's something interesting. Until, until Rudolf Hess, the last survivor of Nazi leadership, hung himself in his home in 1987. Within two years of that happening, the Berlin Wall fell down. And you know what's happened since then? Since that time, since Germany became united, after the United States, Germany has been the number one benefactor of Israel. Most people don't know this. As an act of contrition for the Holocaust, Germany gives a ludicrous amount of support to the state of Israel. America automatically votes with Israel and the United Nations, and Germany pretty much does the same thing. But they've done things like give Israel nuclear submarines, all kinds of weapons and things like that, still out of contrition for what happened in World War II. And if you know anything about the geopolitical conditions of Europe, the single most thriving economy in Europe since 1989 has unquestionably been which country? Germany. Germany is the strongest economy in Europe. It's propped up all of Europe for much of the last five or six years. It's incredibly interesting to me that even though they were the nation behind the Holocaust, when that generation died out essentially, that leadership died out, they began to turn and bless Israel, God began to turn and bless them. There is something to this. I believe it enough that I personally have a cause that I support in the state of Israel because I believe what God says, I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I want to be on the blessed side of that equation and so do you, I promise. That's why we stand with Israel as a church. And what I want you to notice about everything that God says in verses two and three is that it's part of what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. But here's what I want you to notice about it. It's unconditional. There are no conditions attached to God's promises here. There's no, if you do this, then I'll do that. It's all unconditional. Do you see that when you look at it? Make a note of that. God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant are unconditional. And it's not just the way the Bible talks because there are covenants that the Lord will make with the Israelites later on in the Old Testament that will be conditional. But this one, unconditional. And that's important because there are people in churches who will say things like, well, the church has replaced Israel because Israel was unfaithful to God and rejected Jesus. But these promises were made to Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people. There's no confusion for anyone who understands the Bible, even a little bit, that when God says to Abraham, this is for you and your descendants, he's speaking about the Jewish people, at a minimum including them in that statement, 
but I would say emphatically speaking specifically about them. Anyone who understands the Bible knows that and you have to be pretty dishonest to pretend it's not saying that. These promises are not based on Israel being faithful to God. They're based on God being faithful to Israel. And if you'll study the history of Israel in the 20th and 21st centuries, you will be unable to reach any conclusion other than God is still keeping these promises to the state of Israel. If he wasn't, they wouldn't exist, period. That's the bottom line. Verse four, so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Well, that's a nice way of putting it because there's an issue even here. Remember what we read back in verse 31 of the previous chapter? Let me read it to you again. We read, and Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. In other words, God spoke to Abram, told him to leave Ur, but it was Terah, Abram's father, who actually got them moving. Abram became a believer, but he didn't actually immediately separate himself from his old life, even though the Lord had told him to. His father had to get things moving in order to get Abram to move on. Not really a great start. God speaks to you and you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll get on that some, sometime later. Doesn't do it till dad says it's time to go. And not only that, but Abram is traveling on his journey with his father and his nephew Lot, which is not good because the Lord had told Abram specifically to leave his extended family behind when he left. Perhaps he felt bad because Lot's father had recently died, or perhaps Abram simply didn't understand that when the Lord gives us an instruction, it's always for our benefit and the benefit of anyone else it affects. In other words, Abram didn't yet understand how seriously he needed to take the Lord's instructions. Whatever the reason, we're going to find out that bringing Terah along with him will slow Abram's destiny considerably as they hang out in Haran and wait for Terah to die but it's also going to bring Lot and Abram disaster and trouble and chaos and heartache for Lot's family. It's not going to be good for Lot at all in the long run. Back to our text in verse 4 where the sentence ends by telling us, and Lot went with him. When the Bible's redundant, it's trying to tell us something is important. And Lot being along for this ride is going to become a really big deal in a couple of chapters' time. Then we read, and Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. As we said earlier, Haran was nowhere near the direction of Canaan. And because Abram didn't obey God and leave when the Lord told him to, he ends up in Haran with his father and his nephew. He spent several years in Haran delaying his progress, missing out on his destiny. It wouldn't be until his father dies that he begins to move forward into that destiny. You know, sometimes when the Lord calls you, to become part of his family and, and, and become part of his kingdom, he's gonna ask you to leave certain relationships. And the reason the Lord does that is, is because he knows they're not going where you're going. And so they're actually going to keep you from entering the place that the Lord wants to take you to, the place of blessing and provision. And perhaps like Abram, those relationships might be very important to you. They might be very difficult to walk away from. But if the Lord has told you to walk away from that relationship, it's only because he knows you're not going to end up bringing them to the place of blessing. They're going to end up keeping you from the place of blessing. Did you hear me, Christian? That's so good, I need to say it again. Let's make a note of this. If the Lord calls you to walk away from a relationship, 
It's only because he already knows, he's seen the future, and he knows that you're not going to bring them with you to the place of blessing. They're going to keep you from the place of blessing. Here's what we need to remember too. You you know what Abram was probably thinking is, "I, I can't leave Lot. This poor guy, he's got no dad. He's lost in the world. He's a bit stupid, doesn't make good decisions. He, he needs me. And so often we, we can look at relationships that the Lord has told us to leave and we can say, well, well how are they going to find the Lord if I, if I don't stay in their life, if I, if I don't minister to them? But we know the Lord has told us to sever that relationship. There's nothing the Lord does that is good for you and terrible for someone else. Do you realize that? There's nothing the Lord does where he says, well, I want to bless you by completely screwing them over. The Lord never, ever does that. The Lord Lord is so powerful, so sovereign, that he's working out his best plan for you. And if they don't know him, he's working out his best plan for them to do everything that he can within the system of free will to reveal himself to them and draw them to him. So there's no system where if he tells you to leave that relationship, they are now worse off because God has a plan for them. He has a plan for them. I've seen this before in, in, in crazy situations where guys say, well, listen, I, I still need to stay friends with my ex-girlfriend, you know, because she doesn't know the Lord. God can send somebody else to minister to that person. He can send somebody else. If he says you're to end that relationship, do what the Lord says because he can see all the pieces on the chessboard. We can only see right in front of us. As painful as it may be, don't allow yourself to miss out on what the Lord has for you because you won't end a relationship the Lord's called you to leave. But the Lord doesn't give up on Abram. He waits for Abram. You know, the Bible doesn't mention God saying anything to Abram during those years before he left Ur or while he was up in Haran. And I think that's probably because the Lord didn't say anything to Abram during those years. And that's when you and I often start crying out, Lord, why aren't you speaking to me? Just give me some direction. Just tell me what to do. And God answers I did tell you what to do. Like years ago, I told you what to do. I was very specific and I'm not gonna give you more direction till you do the thing that I've already told you to do that you should have done years ago. And many times we're confused about the will of God because we've delayed our obedience to the last instruction that God gave us. Whenever you get a clear word or instruction from the Lord, whether it's at church, in your personal devotional time, anywhere, it can be so helpful to write it down in something like a journal. Even if you have a journal and even if all you keep in it is things you know that the Lord has spoken to you. When you know that God has said something to you, write it down, put a date on it, because then when you get to a moment where you go, what's going on in my life? You can crack that book open, go back and look at the last few things the Lord has told you and you'll usually find the answer or the explanation in there. And obedience to the Lord, we've said this before, cannot be compartmentalized. You can't say, okay, Lord, I'm not going to do that thing you told me to do yet, but that's in this area of life. I still want you to give me direction and leadership in all these other areas. It's not how the Lord works. The Lord says, well, well, if you won't respond to what I said over here, then we got nothing to talk about in all these other areas until you take care of this. God won't compartmentalize. God's not desperate or needy. He's not going to say, well, well, okay, I'm just so scared to have you be mad at me, so we'll just put that issue on the shelf and just keep going. He's not needy like that. He's going to wait as long as he needs to wait for us to obey. So make a note of this. 
the silence of God is often an indicator that we haven't responded to the last thing he told us. The silence of God is often an indicator that we haven't responded to the last thing he told us. Last thing he told Abram was, go to Canaan. That's all you got to do. When are we going to touch base again? When you get to Canaan. And God wasn't mad at Abram, and he's not mad at you. He's not mad at me. You know, when your kids take their first steps, and then they fall down, you don't go, oh, you suck. How could you fall down like that? You're terrible. You can't even walk. Two steps, two steps, that's it. How hard is this? It's just walk. You don't, you don't do that. I hope you don't do that. You know what you do is you celebrate those first few stumbling, awkward steps, and you're so excited because you can already see in your mind where it's going. You can see them walking, and you're so excited for that little bit of progress. Do you know that the Lord is the same way in the way he views you and I with faith? We take our first few steps of faith, and, and like Abram, he's stumbling through his first steps of faith here. He's dragging his way through obedience to the Lord. God's not mad at him, though. God is excited because God's saying, these are your first steps, Abram. And by the time that we get deep into this thing, you're going to be taking steps of faith far bigger than this, and you're going to be taking them right away. And we're going to see that journey play out as we go through these next several chapters in Genesis over the next few weeks. So take hope if you're stumbling in the area of faith. Abram was in a years-long slump, and God didn't give up on him. God won't give up on you or me. His mercies are new every morning. Well, Terah finally dies in Haran, and they get moving, and they finally head into the land of Canaan. Verse 5, then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So even though he's not fully obeying the Lord, did you pick up in there Abram still being blessed with increasing wealth, increasing servants, just for stepping out and starting this journey, even in such a lackluster manner. But once again, we see that Lot, his nephew, is still with him on this journey. Verse 6 Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, underline this, to your descendants I will give this land. To your descendants I will give this land. Now that's important. The reason we stand with Israel, the reason we believe that Israel has the rights to the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights is because God gave them the land. That's it, period. End of conversation if you're a Christian. It's not because we believe they were there first, because according to this, who was there when Abram got there already? Canaanites. Canaanites were there first, right? They were already in the land. But it's not about who's there first, it's about who God gave it to. And he gave it to Abram and his descendants, the Jewish people. Now, two quick notes on this I just want you to be aware of. This promise to God to Abram, I'm sorry. This promise to Abram was made by God before the ancestral roots of the present-day Palestinian people even existed. As far back as the Palestinian people want to trace their ancestry, this happened before that, and I'll explain why. Firstly, there are no Palestinian people. You can do this research on your own. The Palestinians are Arabs. There's no such thing as the Palestinian people. They're Arabs. And the Arab people come from the line of Ishmael, who would be one of the sons of Abraham. 
Arabs will even tell you that. This isn't a dirty secret or some conspiracy. They come from the line of Ishmael. Jews come from the line of Isaac. Both of those are going to be sons of Abram. So Ishmael, who is the father of the Arab people, isn't even born yet when God gives this promise to Abram. Now, if you're a Muslim, you believe that the chosen line goes through Ishmael. If you're a Christian or a Jew, you believe it goes through Isaac. And that's the story that we're going to learn more about soon. Did you also notice, though, that this land promise as well is unconditional? It has no expiration date and no terms at all. It's just a statement from God. It's a statement that's going to be in effect until it is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus, the Jew, will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule the earth during the millennium. That's when this is going to be fulfilled. It's going to be God's real estate on the earth until the earth is done. So continuing in verse 7, it says, And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he underlined this phrase, pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he underlined, built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. We're going to find out that this is Abram's custom. Everywhere he goes, he builds an altar. When God comes to him, he's a worshiper. He's worshiping a false god at the time, but it's just his best guess as to who God was. Abram was a man who understood that the most important things in life lay outside of himself. And, and what he craved was a connection with God. So we see that he builds altars and he pitches tents. He's a worshiper and he's a pilgrim. But what I really want us to notice is that worship gets built while his home gets pitched. One gets full effort and devotion. The other gets partial effort and devotion. So make a note of this. Here's what's happening. Abram builds his spiritual life and he pitches his earthly life. He builds his spiritual life and he pitches his earthly life. He gives full effort and attention to his spiritual life, partial effort and attention to his earthly life. So let me ask you this. In your life, when there's not enough time or resources to do everything, what gets built and what gets pitched? The things that you care most about continue to get built while the things that don't fully have your heart begin to get pitched instead, getting that partial effort. So when the, when the squeeze or the crunch is on in your life, what gets pitched? Is it your daily time with the Lord? Your time in the Word? Is it church? Is it your prayer life? Is it tithing? What is it? The Lord loved Abram because he made the choice to build worship and pitch his home. He built the things that will go on into eternity and pitch the things that are going to fade away with this earth. My hope is that we would be people who do the same thing and live the same way. It's the best, wisest way to live. Abram, as some of you will know, will never actually build himself a house, ever, regardless of how much money he acquires. And... By the end of his life, he will be by all accounts the wealthiest man on the planet in all likelihood. But he'll never build himself a permanent house. Why? It's on your outlines. Hebrews 11.10 tells us it was because he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In other words, somehow, 
some way, Abram was given a vision or at minimum an understanding of the glory of where he was ultimately headed. God allowed Abram to understand what the glory of heaven would be like, the city of God where he would spend eternity, the new Jerusalem of Revelation 21, the city of God that will be revealed along with the new heaven and new earth after the millennium when this whole universe comes to an end. And having an understanding of that, having seen that, nothing material on the earth really held that much appeal for Abram. Nothing impressed him when people would go, look at my new chariot. He'd be like, God's is made of gold. It's five-dimensional. There are creatures with four faces pulling it. Whatever. So it sort of ruined his ability to be impressed by anything that was on the earth in the best possible way. Everything paled in comparison to where he was going. So he never got around to building a permanent home for himself because he just felt like, what? Like, what's the point? Putting all this time and effort to live here for 50 years? Why bother? That's the way to live. The Bible says we're all pilgrims. We're all sojourners passing through this life on our way to our ultimate destination in the presence of the Lord. And, And we might think what we're really craving is that certain house that cabin by the lake, or, or that, that place which just seems like it would be so great to live at. But, but what we're really craving is heaven. We're craving heaven. Nothing else is gonna last. Nothing else is gonna satisfy. We long for heaven. So don't spend your life trying to build the perfect house here. Spend your life building the altar of worship wherever you go. Build up worship in your life. Build it into your day and you'll find yourself at home wherever you are, wherever you are. Abram pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Bethel means house of God. You might know the word El means God. Beth just means house or home. So Bethel, house of God. Ai means heap or dump. So he had the house of God ahead of him and he had a dump on the other side of him. That's a pretty good illustration of where you and I live. We've got heaven before us. We've got the world behind us. Right now we're halfway in between. We're on our way, but we're not there yet. We're on our way to heaven, but the stink of the heap is still around. Verse nine, it says, so Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. So overall, Abram, just to recap, not off to a great start. God says, time to start a journey. He doesn't start until his father drags him out of Ur. God says, leave your family. He brings his family. Maybe some of you wish the Lord would command you to leave your extended family. I don't know. God says, go to Canaan, and Abram waits before leaving Ur, and then spends years camped out in Haran. Now he's in Canaan, and his faith is about to be tested. Why? So that his faith can grow. The only way you and I can grow in faith is to have the opportunity to exercise greater faith. And here comes a fantastic opportunity for Abram. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So God had told Abram to go to Canaan. That's where God wanted him to be. And now there's a test. There's a famine. Will Abram stay in Canaan and trust if this is God's plan, if this is where God called me to be, God will provide? Or is he going to freak out? Well, we keep reading and it says, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. He's not going to pass this particular test of faith. In the Bible, you'll notice that whenever people go to Egypt, wherever they're coming from, they're going down to Egypt. Just as you'll notice that wherever people are coming from, they go up to Jerusalem. 
If they're coming from the south or the north, they go up to Jerusalem. It has to do with its spiritual condition. Jerusalem's the city of God. We talked before about how Babylon is sort of Satan's place on the earth. Egypt in the scriptures is generally just a symbol of the world. It's the world system, everything that the world has to offer. And what we see here is Abram getting under some pressure and so he turns to the world because he thinks he needs to take matters into his own hands. He thinks the answer lies in Egypt, in the world. So write this down. Abram leaves the promised land, Canaan, to seek a solution in the world, which is Egypt. To seek a solution in the world. And that's a mistake that we can, we can so easily make. So many times, right? God's not speaking, so I'll take matters into my own hands and just go find a solution out there in the world. And in reality, God had already spoken. He had told Abram where to be. It's just that trusting God was now getting a bit more difficult. It wasn't that Abram was confused about what he should do. It was just getting more difficult. And we should be very, very careful about accusing God of not speaking when in reality he has spoken. It's just that we've entered a season where trusting and believing him has gotten a little bit more difficult. It doesn't mean he hasn't spoken. It just means the test is on now. Isaiah the prophet recorded this at a later time when the Israelites were trying to make themselves militarily secure by signing treaties with the Egyptians. It's on your outlines. This is what the Lord says, and it applies to Abram, and it applies to us looking to the world for answers. The Lord says, woe to the rebellious children who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. In case you haven't figured it out, God's not really a big fan of running to the world for answers and solutions. God says, you haven't asked me. You haven't asked my advice. You haven't asked me for help. Running to the world is never going to work out. It's going to end in shame and humiliation. Another reality is that sometimes it takes more faith to stay in the promised land than it does to get there in the first place. This is what Abram is beginning to run into. People, people get confused sometimes and they say things like, you know, in the Bible, the promised land is a metaphor for heaven. No, it's not. You know how we know? Because in the promised land, there's still battles to be fought. There's still giants to overcome. There's still obstacles and faith steps that need to be taken. None of that's in heaven. Let me put it this way. If you've been married for more than a few years, then you know what I mean when I say sometimes it takes more faith to stay in the promised land than it does to enter the promised land. I won't ask for a show of hands here. Don't betray your spouse. But I wonder how many of us said, man, if I could just get married, then every, man, all my needs would be met. Everything would be amazing. The companionship I'm looking for, the other stuff I'm looking for, it's all going to come together. And then you get married and suddenly you realize, I'm still going to need faith to stick this thing out. I share often with, with people who've been married a couple of years. I say, how did how'd the first year go? Did you find that the whole uh, newlywed bliss thing is kind of a myth? And I haven't had one couple yet say, no, the first year was easy. Every couple is like, I thought something was horribly wrong for our first period of marriage, our first year of marriage. I didn't know it was supposed to be that hard. It's always that hard. 
Because it takes more faith sometimes to stay where God has called you to be than to get in there in the first place, to have faith that God's going to continue to work. He got you there. He can keep you there. He can do a work there as well. Abram didn't do so well with this faith test this time around. Verse 11, and it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife. So they're getting ready to enter Egypt and Abram needs to touch base with his wife, Sarai, about a potential issue that might come up. He says, indeed, I know you're a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it'll happen when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife and they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. So, Please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So in the world at that time, you could take a man's wife by killing that man. But if there was no husband, you had to negotiate a dowry with the father. If there was no father, you had to negotiate with the brother. So most women dream of, uh, of having a man who will defend her honor if the situation demands it. A man who will stand up and say, you won't talk to my wife that way. You won't treat my wife that way as long as I'm breathing. Abram says, babe, listen, everyone knows you're hot. You're over 60 and you still got it. In fact, you got so much of it that some Egyptian dude is going to kill me and steal you. So do me a favor. Just pretend you're my sister for this one trip. That way we both get out alive. Sound good? And I imagine Sarai's response was something along the lines of, fine. And based on Abram's behavior up to this point, I deduce that Abram was the kind of guy who walked away going, I thought that was going to be a difficult conversation, but she's fine with it. Now, Abram and Sarai actually were half-brother and sister. She was the daughter of one of Terah's, his dad's other wives. Again, different place, different time. Weird now. But a half-truth is still a total lie. So Abram led his family down into Egypt because he didn't trust God to provide for them in Canaan. And now he's scheming with his wife because he doesn't trust God to protect them while they're in Egypt. Verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princess of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So sheep, oxen, and donkeys were the, they were the Rolexes and the, the MacBooks and the Teslas of the day. And Pharaoh said, you take the sweet stuff, bro, I'll take your sister. And out of a desire to not die, Abram said, works for me. Now, now later in the Old Testament, after the Israelites have been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, and they're going now to the promised land, they've been set free. They're taking on their enemies in the promised land. God will command them. He'll command Joshua and the Israelites over and over and over again, do not be afraid. He'll command them, do not be afraid. And the reason is simple, write this down. Fear leads us to make sinful compromises. Fear leads us to make sinful compromises. That's a whole sermon unto itself, isn't it? It's so true. And how often have you found yourself compromising with sin because there's something you were afraid of? Something you were afraid of not having. Something you were afraid of missing out on. Something you were afraid that if you waited for it would never happen. 
Fear leads us to make sinful compromises. And that's, that's what happened to Abram in Egypt. Verse 17. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she's my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. So not only does God have a plan for Abram, but he's got a plan for Sarai too. In 1 Peter 3, on your outlines, Peter is writing to a woman in the church, and he says this. He says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. And now Peter's gonna point to Sarai, whose name would later be changed to Sarah, as the example of someone who embodies this incorruptible beauty. He says, for in this manner, in former times, the holy woman who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord or Master, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So instead of saying, forget you, Abram, I'm out of here. Sarai stayed faithful to Abram and his leadership, even when he was being a faithless fool. And you notice that Peter says she is to be commended because she didn't let fear stop her from doing what was right in that situation. And incredibly, the Bible says, even in that situation, she did the right thing by being submissive to her husband, who God had made the leader of their family. She could have easily said, you know what? I'm tired of living in a tent. I'm tired of being married to a spineless coward who won't listen to the Lord. Do you know what's great? This palace, it has real walls. There's bathing. Pharaoh bathes. He doesn't hang out with goats. I'd be royalty. Well, Lord, it looks like you're doing a work here, and who am I to stand in the way of what God is doing? But but based on what the Lord did, based on what Peter writes about Sarah, we can deduce that that she was in spiritual anguish in that situation because she's thinking, Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do here. He's my husband. I want to honor him in his leadership, but right now I'm, I'm in Pharaoh's palace, and Pharaoh is thinking that something's going to happen very soon which is going to create some serious problems with me needing to be faithful to my husband. And God, I I don't know what to do here. The lesson, ladies, is that, that God's command to let your husband lead your family doesn't only apply when you think he's doing a good job. Do you understand that if you agree with what he's doing, that's not necessarily actually submission because you'd be doing it anyway? That's not what the command is there for. The the command is there for those times when you're you're not on the same page, for when you would do things differently. That's when it's submission. If you would do it anyway, then submission's not part of the equation at all. And the encouragement is to remember that the Lord is always at work. He's at work in you, he's at work in your husband, and he's at work in your kids. Trust the Lord. Do things his way and watch what the Lord will do. It's easy to say, "Ah, I want to do what the Bible says, but my husband's just, 
It's just so stupid, Lord. And God says, I know. I know. I see it too. We're on the same page. But the solution for your husband not leading well is not for you to now fail at being a godly wife. It's not for you to now do a bad job at being a godly wife just because he's doing a bad job at being a godly husband. You do what I've called you to do and watch what I'll do in your husband. Watch what I will do in your family. So in this instance, what the Lord does, because he's not just looking out for Abram, he's looking out for Sarai, is we're told that something medical happens to Pharaoh and his household. And, and it happens in such a way that it's obvious to Pharaoh that it's because of Sarai and it's only something that God could do. Now we don't know the specifics. We don't know the specifics. But as a student of the Bible, I think what likely happened is, you know, the night comes and Pharaoh's thinking, this is the night. Me and Sarai, we're going to make some magic happen. He's coming in, he's got his robe on. You know, it's not done up. It's just right there so you can see his abs. He's got his leopard print loincloth on, real leopard skin. He's got a glass of wine. He's got his gold chain. He walks in the room and says, what's up? Takes a few steps in. Suddenly there's a sensation, a very itchy sensation. And he says, uh, just give me a minute. <clears throat> Takes another step forward. It gets worse. What is going on? I need to sit down. Sits down, says, I can't sit down. Takes a few steps back. Suddenly it's not so itchy anymore. Takes a few steps forward. Suddenly it's very itchy again. A few steps back. Out her room. Suddenly he feels fine. He's like, something's up. Something's up. And he knows what's going on. And he figures out, he says, what's the deal? What's the deal? And I, I would imagine that what happens is Sarai likely tells him, he's my husband. He's like, man, man, just get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. And so it's no surprise then he tells Abram, after likely having an experience with supernatural hemorrhoids, he tells Abram, now therefore, here's your wife. Take her and go on your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So the implication is here, not only does he want him to just leave the palace, he has them escorted out of the country. He sends his men with him like, make sure these people never come back. I never want to itch like that again. Get them out of the country. And God is good to Abram, even in his stupidity. Because if you read it, it says that they left with all he had. So Abram still leaves with all the swag that Pharaoh gave him. God is good to Sarai. He preserves her honor and miraculously protects her in Pharaoh's house. So, so what do you see here? That because Sarah was faithful, because she was not overwhelmed by fear, what's the end situation? God protects her. God blesses the family. And ladies, you might think, um, isn't this a little bit chauvinistic? A little bit sexist? So, so what's the moral of the story? Abram pimps out his wife in Egypt to Pharaoh in order to save his own skin and comes out of it wealthier, smelling like a rose. I uh, don't think I'm going to read my kids that story at night. Well, 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 not really, because sure, he ends up with a bunch of material wealth and possessions, but he also ends up with a maidservant that was given to Sarai. And that maidservant's name is Hagar. And Hagar's presence in their family will end up breaking 
both Abram's heart and his family in a devastating, devastating way. As we've discussed before, nobody ever gets away with sin. Ever. It might take years, but Galatians 6-7 is true. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And, and men, if we blow it in our role as leader of our families, it will lead to hurt and heartbreak. It will. It's absolutely inevitable that that will happen. I'll wrap up with this. Jesus was, Jesus was clear when you read his words on the earth that following him means he becomes the priority in your life over everything. Everything, including family and, and any other relationship. Jesus even said explicitly, he said, if you're not willing to leave mother and father for me, you're not worthy of me. The idea isn't that you have to do that, but the idea is if the Lord called you to, that you would need to be willing to. There should be no earthly relationship that matters to you more than your relationship with the Lord. And if there's a relationship in your life that the Lord is calling you to sever, you need to do it. Don't delay, just do it because whenever the Lord asks us to obey him in something difficult and we delay our obedience, here's what we think. We think we're stealing some extra time with pleasure, with enjoyment, with comfort. But what we're really doing is we're delaying and missing out on God's blessings. We're delaying God's work in our lives. We're delaying the destiny he has for us. We're delaying the promised land he's trying to get us to. We're missing out on all that. We think we're getting away with something and all we're doing is missing out on the blessings of God for our life. If it feels like God has been silent in your life, use this coming time of prayer and worship to ask him to remind you of the last thing he spoke to you. And if you need to respond to that, make sure you do it. God hasn't left you. He's never gonna leave you. And finally, let me encourage you with this. Build your spiritual life and pitch your earthly life. Build your spiritual life and pitch your earthly life. Don't give your best efforts and focus and energy to things that are gonna be ultimately worthless. Don't give your best to those things. Give your best to the kingdom of God where you're gonna spend eternity. Give your best to where you're going to be forever. Give your best to the Lord. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word that the man we consider the father of faith has his first several stumbling steps, his faltering first years recorded in scripture so that we can marvel that you didn't give up on him, just like you don't give up on us that your desire is to bless and to do good things in our lives as it was to do in the life of Abram and his family. Father, our only prayer is that we would learn from his first few faltering steps and we would not buy into the lie that we're stealing time with pleasure or comfort by delaying our obedience to you when in reality all we're missing out on are your blessings, and the chance to be in the place that you've prepared for us, experiencing a greater level of your goodness and your provision, a greater level of intimacy with you in our relationship. Lord, we don't want to miss out on any of that, Lord. So help us to obey quickly. 
And then finally, Lord, I pray for anyone here who feels like you've been silent. It's been hard to hear you. Lord, would you speak with clarity this morning? Even if it's the same thing you said before, spoken again so that we can obey this time. Would you be gracious and speak to us clearly, Lord, that we might obey. Thank you that you never leave us, you never forsake us, even for a moment, Lord. You're always faithful, you're always good. And we love you so much for it, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.